Hey guys, welcome back to pre-production. Thank you so much for listening to yet another episode. I have a very special guest with me today. He's the director of Layer Cake, Stardust, Kick-Ass, X-Men First Class, Kingsman the Secret Service, Kingsman the Golden Circle, and The King's Man. His latest film, Argyle, opens today, February 2nd. Matthew Vaughn, thank you so much for coming on. And I'm going to get right into it because our time is somewhat limited. Do you have a specific memory of the first time that you discovered your love of movies or thought, perhaps I could make movies one day? Where did that begin for you? Well, I, I can answer that in two ways. So we'll talk, let's talk about falling in love with cinema because I think the idea of thinking I can make movies, you, you got to be a rare cat to watch a movie and think, hey, I'm going to do that. I mean, that's probably Spielberg or... Um, but I was, it was 1977, it's a bit of a cliche, but I was watching Star Wars in the cinema and I was young enough to believe that Darth Vader was in the small ship going inside the princess's ship, which must be the big one because she's the princess. That's how young I was. But I remember going, holy moly, this, whatever, I don't know what I'm in right now and what I'm watching, but I have fallen in love with this experience. And, and let's say that was my um, getting engaged. And then I got fully married, where in a couple of months later, I saw Raiders of the Lost Ark. And then I was, I, I was, because then I got scared. <laughs> so I had never been scared in the movie when the angels came out and the faces started melting. And I was like, whoa, I, I'm, I think I'm enjoying this because I'm freaking out. Um, and so they, 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 they were the two movies that, that, I uh, that, and then Spy Loved Me as well, the Bond movie. I saw that, and I was like the spectacle of of everything as well. So, so these are the movies where I was like, it it, it sucked me in, right? Um, and it was a different time as well because you didn't you couldn't rent DVDs or or download movies. You had to go to the cinema, and, and then and then I was getting angry with the world because I wanted to watch Jaws, I wanted to watch Alien, and I couldn't get in, and you know, there was no VHS. And then the world, then VHS came out. And I found a guy who, for an extra 50p, would let you pretend even though you're nine, you could you could watch an 18. So <laughs> suddenly I was watching Driller Killer, a Exterminator, a you know, Alien. I was watching every horror movie known to man. And, and my mother's going, why are you having nightmares? And I was like, I don't know, Mary Poppins was a bit scary, Mom. You know, she had no idea what I was watching. But all I did was watch movies and I listened to music. Watch, I mean, v VHS was like a re revolution that I cannot tell you because in England we only had back then three TV channels. That was it, um, and so that, that's when I fell in love with cinema and, and remained in, in love. And then the moment it occurred to me to make movies, uh, it's a bizarre one that I was a busboy in, in the Hard Rock Cafe in LA, right? And my job, and I'm very good at this. If you ever need this, I'm really, really good at filling up ketchup bottles. And it's a real art taking two Heinz ketchup bottles and getting the you know, making it fill up again and look brand new and play. That was my job. Um, we need a lot of that in here in America. Tons yeah, of that. Yeah, um, I, I'm well aware of it because. Um, but you never ate. The, I wish everyone just ate the whole bottle each time because then I wouldn't have to keep refilling a third to a two third anyway the, um and there really is a secret to doing it which is, it's all about angle and tapping what was astonishing about being at the at the restaurant was every waiter waitress i they'd say they're in the movie business you know and i was like 18 i was like what do you mean you're in the movie business and they're going oh, i'm a producer i'm a writer i'm a director i'm an actor and i was like oh i was written like an idiot I was like, oh it's really cool what are you working on and <laughs> not much they were with me but i it it put 
a thought in my mind of, oh, you can make a living out of making movies. That just didn't occur to me. Um, and then there was one person, uh, and they said they said they're going to be a producer. I didn't know what a, I didn't know what a producer was. Director, producer, same whatever. You know, was, they made movies. And I asked, and I said, what does a producer do? And they said, oh, you need no qualifications. You just need to know how to bullshit. That sounds good. I can do that. To the horror of my parents, I dropped out of college because this was my gap year. Um, and I said, I'm, I'm moving to LA, I'm gonna make movies. And they were like, you've got to be joking. And I said, I'm gonna be a producer because you don't need a degree. So I'm going off. And then I started working in the movie business, make photocopying scripts, making tea and work my way up. And then I'll skip five, six years because then I worked with Guy Ritchie and we made Lockstock and Snatch and I had this incredible partnership of two guys living the dream taking on the system winning making friends real friends back then having the time of our lives and it all sort of came crashing to a halt when we were prepping layer cake which he was going to direct and he suddenly said he goes hey vorney um nah, i don't want to direct this movie i'm like well <laughs> what do you mean you don't want to direct the film he's like ah well you know I, I don't want to do it. I've got another movie I want to make now, but don't worry about it. You know, you just put it on ice. I'm like, I'll put it on ice. You know, I'm trying to raise the money. We've got it all ready. We're prepping it. Um, and I went home and I was really gutted because I knew this was a good script, right? A really good script. And I was like, and I said to my wife, I'm, I'm fucked. Um, guys just pulled out. I'm going to have to find a director. And uh, God, it's a headache. And my wife said to me, you should direct it. And I was like, Debbie, what, what do you mean I should direct it? And she said, I think you should direct it. I've seen how you work as a producer. I really think you should direct it. And I thought, oh, you're just my wife. You're being lovely and sweet, blah, blah, blah. Of course, you know, you know, uh, it's a sweet idea, but it's, I don't think that should happen. And then I went, went to my office to meet with J.J. Connolly, who wrote the script and the book. And J.J. got terrible news. Um, guys pulled out and um, we're going to have to try and find a new director but the movie will be on ice. It probably won't be at least a year till we can get this up and running. And he said, you should direct it. And I was like, what the hell are you talking about? And he said, you really should direct it. I've been working with you. I see you get the subject matter. And I had no aspirations to direct. So I'm like really confused at this point. So I go back home and I was like, Claudia, um, JJ just said what you said. And she says, well, what's stopping you? And I went, I don't know how to direct. I've never done it. Um, I think this could be a, a disaster. And I'm a producer. And if I muck this up, no director will ever take me seriously as a producer again. They just say, you're a failed, moronic director. Why should I listen to you? And my wife went, just do it. Just do it. And I went, okay. And we went and made Lair Kick. And it's a damn good film. And so uh, you can thank your wife for for recommending that because she was right man um it's funny my wife did the same thing with me well she that's gave, what i thought you it's your partners you need yeah encouragement yeah you know it's 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 crazy because you know i i felt that i could do it for so many years and and once the concept came along she was like this is it just we, we have to work on this this has to happen she has a story credit on the film so well good well please yeah. applaud her from me making movies with friends i think is one of the best things you can ever do when you're surrounded mm -hmm. by people who actually enjoy being around they're not there because of money they're not there because of any specific other reason they're there because they're genuinely involved in the storytelling process with you and they're 
having a good time. I've never really felt a high like that in my life. When mm-hmm. you're pulling off a story and the shots are looking good and the actors are on point and you're surrounded by people who kind of love you as well. And, and there's nothing quite like it. And I couldn't agree with you more, but I am astonished. I go to most film sets and it's like being in a morgue. Mm. Uh, there's no one's and and the thing that drives me nuts so when i was you know working in the at the bottom of the you know when i was you know if i was asked to make a photocopy of a script i made two one for me to go home and read and one for the producer or the actor who needed it and when i was on a set i was glued i was watching the director i was watching the actors you know and and now on movie sets you know when you say action and you look around it's like everyone's on their bloody telephone yeah it's seeing masters act or a director's directing and you should be interested you know we're getting paid to play it's an honor and it's fun and and i'm astonished how many people moan when they're making a movie i'm You're like right. what do you got what are you moaning about you could be down a coal mine you know yeah. it's like just this is a privilege to be given to make a film and um and i think the moment you cease to be excited about it get out of the business, please, because you don't deserve to be in there and you're stopping someone who is excited, not getting in. Time is so limited, you know, especially yeah. on the indie film. It's like every single second matters that you're getting your shots and you've got your shot list. And if we fuck around too much, you're going to miss something important. And so yeah, mate, you're, you're, you're looking at Mr. Independent, like Lockstock was 900 grand. We made that for all right. right. Uh, Lair Cake was just under 3 million. You know, Argyle's independent, Kingsman's independent, you know, um, you don't get the church sequence in a, in a uh, studio finance movie. Let's put it that way. Um, so I am, I love independent cinema and um, that's my passion, taking on the system and people, as I said, to picking up a camera and go make a movie and um, I applaud it. And it's, that's, that is the, the, the soul of making a movie is from the independence. And then when you go up the ladder or if you start working in the studio system, never give up the independent spirit because you'll lose your soul and you'll end up making a terrible movie because you have to fight for what you know is right. And and it's difficult. It's really difficult. When the bigger the movie, it becomes like you're dealing with politics and all this other stuff. But if you're an independent filmmaker, deep down, there's a craft and there's a passion and then a belief in filmmaking Art isn't, you know, when you're watching, you know, when you're an audience member, you don't, you're not, you're not thinking about the budget or the or the schedule or where the money came from. You're just watching the movie. But when you're an independent, at least the rubbish stuff doesn't interfere. However, you never have enough money to do what you need to do as well. So you, but sometimes not having enough money really sometimes creates better scenes because you have to think your way around the problem and sometimes the solutions to the problem was better than the desire you know in hollywood they throw money at problems and that doesn't necessarily solve it. it means the movie gets finished but some of the the things that they throw money at are like you know they're, they're putting plasters on wounds instead of just getting in there and fixing the wound yeah we had a sequence in our film that uh was shot listed for like i don't know like 50 or 60 shots it's this massive sort of finale thing and um it was 115 degrees on set that day uh, everybody had to wear sweaters though, because the portion of the movie was cold. So the actors were dying. Uh, there were stunts, uh, blood gags, all this crazy shit. And we ended up losing like 20 shots that day. 
And I asked the uh, the data guy, I was like, can I please have a drive? I got to take this home and edit this and look at it and see if it, if what we can do tomorrow, if there's any time we can throw in a couple extra shots. And I went home and I stayed up until five in the fucking morning editing this thing together. And I came back to set and I talked to my DP and we were like, look, this is what we got. And he looked at him and was like, oh my God, yeah, we need to do like five shots right now. So we found an hour that day to do five extra shots and yeah. it, it sewed the scene together. And I spent then the next few months terrified that we had ruined our finale. Our editor said, dude, you've given me so much. What are you fucking worried about? And he cut the scene together and he showed me like a rough draft of the scene and my heart just calmed down immediately. We wow. thought we were yeah. fucked, you know? Yeah. We were like, well, we didn't do this shot and this shot and this shot. And he was like, dude, you've given me plenty. And he showed me the cut and I realized, you know, if we had more time and more money and I had done all those extra shots, it might've been too much. And the fact that we had to kind of figure out what were the five imperative shots that we needed to get that day to make yeah. the scene work. And we did those shots. That's all we had to do. It sounds like you've got a great editor as well. Cause an editor's job is to, you know, be the safety net and to just make you feel calm. And, and also, you know, something you, 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 you missed stuff and the editor can like that phone call saying, Hey, you need this. Yeah. I mean, an editor is, is such an important part of the, part of the machine. I have a very vivid memory of when I first realized that films were actually constructed by people, because when I was a child, I sort of viewed them as this magical, uh, the, the, the movies were a magical box that showed me things that yeah. I didn't understand. When I saw, for instance, The Lion King, when I was young, I just thought this is beautiful and amazing and, and I'm crying and I love this, but I never really imagined, you know, dozens of people with pencil grit underneath their fingernails. And, you know, if I watched a Hayao Miyazaki film, I didn't imagine him hunched over a chair drawing every single image. There mm -hmm. came a point though, where I began to notice the credits and be like, what is a gaffer? What is a boom operator? What does that mean? And I started to actually realize that they could be made. Did you ever have a moment where that was uh, a realization of yours that, oh, people actually make these? Could I make these? You'll laugh at my answer. I'm going to give you the answer you've never heard before. I had that moment when I produced my first film called The Innocent Sleep, and I was 23 years old, and literally I was ringing um, people going, what's the best boy? What do they do? What are those other stuff? <laughs> and then I was like the producer, and I had no idea what I was doing, but I was blagging it, because remember I said, like, someone told me, you just have to know how to bullshit. So I went, I'm going to take this to the whole new level. And so I somehow bullshitted myself into being a movie producer at 23 with being the youngest guy on the set and everyone looking at me what to do. And it became, it was chaos, by the way. And I had no idea how many people was needed to work because, you know, working on a movie set because it was the first time I'd been on producing. Um, it was extraordinary to me. And, I was, and then sometimes I go, how many people does it take to push a bloody dolly? Yeah, <laughs> I was like, um, um, so I, I yeah, I, as I said, I've had a bit of an unusual career. Every producer I know, even some that I'm friends with, would say that, you know, assuaging people and bullshitting people is essentially the name of the game. Yeah. So, I mean, you got it, man. Um, I want to talk a little bit about Argyle because uh, I saw the film last night and there's a number of very impressive action scenes in your film. And you're no stranger to pulling off a great one. You mentioned the church scene, which is an all timer, in my opinion. I'm wondering if you can sort of walk a novice like me when it comes to action 
through the ins and outs of shooting a massive sequence that's cutting between your actors, your doubles. There's also visual effects. There's all of these things to consider. What is a day on set like that for you? We stunt vis everything, right? Because you can't make this stuff up on the day. A, it would be impossible. B, it would be incredibly dangerous. If you ever come to England, come to my edit suite, and I'll show you all the stunt visits where you li we literally get cardboard boxes and we build rough sets and we get the video, just get a video camera out. Well, now it's iPhone, so it's a lot easier. But, um, and we shoot the whole sequence and we edit it, we get the music, and then we, once we've got that perfect with the stunt guys, then we do it again with the actors. Um, and then we figure out what we can get away with. So we, when we go onto an action scene, it is every second is ready, ready to go. And then on the day, you see a few things that you slightly tweak uh, or things go wrong. Um, the amount of prep, it's all for me, it's all about prep, 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 because I like action that tells a story, that is pushing on the narrative, that um, has geography in it, and you know who is fighting whom and why and who's winning and who's losing. So it's really, really, we prep, 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 prep. And this one was harder as well. I mean, because all I'd say is that in the oil skating sequence, just imagine that that was shot by a cameraman ice skating backwards while operating. Um, and that wow. was the most extraordinary thing I have ever, you know, I was just on set going, oh my God. And then, and then I'd go, that was amazing. And he'd look at the shot afterwards and go, no, I slightly barrett here and I could, I could do it better. And then he'd go, Boom, and he'd learn. So he could get on the, on the, on the, on, on the floor ice rink and he could just, you could blindfold him and he could do it all perfectly backwards. So he's literally just looking and he's, and he's pulling focus and, and pulling yeah. focus too as well. Yeah. It's just everything. He was operating. Wow. It was the most extraordinary thing i remember going you deserve an oscar for what you just did today sir that blows my mind um yeah the closest i've ever seen to that is somebody on rollerblades and that's that's truly amazing mm. wow yeah, and that and is I bet, a great were, they, uh, were they going forward or backwards <laughs> that's the thing is they were going forward yeah, yeah <laughs> that's, that's that's you know yeah that's why i, I, I couldn't believe because i remember when we were trying to figure it out and I was like, oh my God, we're going to have to go to Wirecam and how do we do this? And, and then a friend said, no, 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 this guy, he's brilliant. And he turned up and I was just, I didn't believe it was possible. That's incredible. And the scene is great. Uh, it's one of my favorite scenes in the movie. You worked with Sam Rockwell on this, who I think is just charismatic as fuck in it. He's so funny. He's so likable instantly. I mean, he really makes it look easy. Um, yeah. And great actors do. But I mean, I could not love him more in the movie did you guys you know talk a lot about the movie early on or, or did he kind of go like oh matthew vaughn i'm in you know like what is it like to work with someone of his caliber a true pleasure sam is a really interesting actor as well because um ironically when i when i write and imagine movies i'm always putting movies uh, legends in my mind you know so you know kingsman was david niven coming colin firth mm. um this movie I was like, okay, Henry, you're going to be a mixture of um, James Bond, but I want you to have be 50% Sean Connery, 50% Roger Moore. Bring him, bring bring them together in this role. And with Sam, we we discussed it, and and, and we were saying, you know, 50% Gene Wilder, 
and then 25% Nicholson, 25% Bill Murray. That was sort of the, the, the vibe we were going for. And then I got to know Sam really well, and, he, and he's very unique, his approach, and his best friend was Philip Seymour Hoffman, right? Mm. And, and they were both trying to be actors. And he told me the story that Hoffman said, look, I know how we're going to have a career. What we're going to do is, is look at us. You know, we're not, um, we don't look like movie stars, so we've got to be different. So when we go into auditions, if the script says, sit down and be quiet, we, we're going to stand up and we're going to shout. We're going to do absolutely everything different to all these other auditions. And that sums up Sam. So he looks at a scene and he just, you know, you've got me trying to turn everything on its head. Then he turns everything on its head. And it, and so, and Sam and I were on the same level that this sort of meta crazy, let's try this. And we were, we were bouncing off each other. The rest of the crew and the writer and Bryce, they're all like, oh my God, what are they doing today? Um, <laughs> but I was in heaven because I met someone who's as crazy as me and who loves film. He is a cinephile as well. So we could talk about moments and references. And I said, well, maybe we'll make it a bit like this, or we should do that. And it was instant. And um, he was very inspirational. And, and, and for me, he's a new guy. You know, we haven't seen a spy like him in a long, long time. No, no, that's, yeah. uh, I'm, that's, that's wonderful to hear. You know, and I can see that in all of his performances that he cares. It sounds like he's the kind of actor you hope you get when you sign someone on. Yeah, I mean, I've been very lucky with my actors because, you know, they, they're the masters of their game. You know, John Houston said it, directing is 90% casting, and he's right. You know, you've just done it. And, uh, and yeah. think of the amount of work you've done with your, as you say, your camera work, the script, the editor. But if the actors suck, you're sitting there going, oh, my God, what do I do? I mean, I, 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 what do we do? What do we do? They can't act. And, I, and yeah. you, can't, you can't hide that. Yeah. And you can't hide on fake chemistry either. I always say the first job as a director is to cast it properly and everything else will follow. I want to talk to you about the cat because on my film, I worked with a very difficult dog and ended up having to replace the dog because mm. he did nothing right. And we ended up getting the dog, one of the dogs from John Wick 3, uh, which was beautiful. And she was incredible. So I I'm curious what it was like working with this cat or cats on Argyle? Well, <laughs> this is the truth. So we had, I went through the same experience with you. And I can tell you, first of all, dogs are a lot easier than cats. Okay. Um, and you can sort of get an acting dog. You cannot get an acting cat. Okay. Let's be very clear. Uh, we had an acting cat and I got rid of him as well after the oh. first day of filming. Um, okay. Uh, uh, and so I went home. And I'm a dog person, right? Um, and our house, we got, we got four dogs, but my daughter has a cat. So I went up to my daughter and I said, I'm going to borrow the cat if possible. And she's like, what do you mean? I went, I'm going to need the cat for the next three months and putting him in the film. And he was great. So it was one cat. I suddenly got nervous one of my dogs eating the cat halfway through filming. I was like, whoa, i got to really make sure <laughs> they get nowhere near the cat. But what happened, and it's interesting so you've done this, because one of my problems with animals on sets is really it's the trainers it's the, the the handlers right so i was the handler in this but you know when you're doing a scene and they're like well they're not looking at you know the, the actors like hey and he's not looking he's, he's looking at the guy holding the treat right. and then you try to get them as near to the camera as possible the allies never quite and they look too ready for the treat they want the treat they're in this high alert what do you want me to do what do you want me to do yes um and i think what worked with this cat 
it was my cat. So he just thought we were at home. We, we moved house and I'd just grab him. So and he'd be about, he'd be with me in the trailer. I had to drive to work with the cat. Uh, he stayed with me in the trailer. And then I'd say, right, okay, all right, I need you now. Plonk him in front of the camera. But I was there. He's like, yeah, whatever. I'm, I'm at home. <laughs> so, and I, so I think people are really responding to the cat. And I think it's because he's not, he's just being a cat. Yeah, we had one cat, and 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 at the beginning of the movie, I was a big big dog guy. Uh, by the end of it, I'm still a big dog guy, and I'm a little cat guy. Um, so yeah, yeah, you chip the cat. Well, that's fantastic. Um, also, that we both fired animals is, mm. um, I think that reserves a special place in hell for both of yeah, us. Yeah, look at we, we our wives and our animal um, experiences we have in common now. I'm curious um, how you have changed as a filmmaker since layer cake and i'm wondering if you could give that version of yourself that shot layer cake on day one walking into layer cake on day one a piece of advice from the now you i know the two mistakes i made immediately that during rehearsals um daniel craig took me to one side i was rehearsing with michael gambon and he said listen you got to stop giving michael gambon line readings i was like what's the line reading and he says, and he says, because I know how to direct. So I thought you just read the lines, and they, in the way you want them to sound. <laughs> Actors don't like that, which I found out. And uh, Michael Gambon, who's rest in peace, and Michael, uh, one of the greatest living actors we've ever had in England, and he was so cool about it. He didn't complain. He kept doing it, right? And he thought it was quite funny. Apparently, going, all right, well, I'll do it like him. Um, so then I. Um, so that was the rehearsals I screwed up. But then on the first day of filming, I can remember this moment so clearly that the camera was set up. DP said, and this is, you know, doing this on film and there's old school cameras. And I go to look through uh, the viewfinder and I'd never done it before. And I and Daniel's in front of the camera. And as I went down, I went, well, this is the first time I've ever looked through a movie camera. And I looked down and I could just see pure fear and horror on Daniel's face suddenly. And I looked down and went, I shouldn't have said that. Um, and, um, and then, but then I had a great DP who demystified that. Cause that's the whole thing. You, you go, oh my God, it's okay. Look at all these lenses. And then someone said, well, it's like a golf set. You know, there's, it's pretty obvious that, you know, this lens you'll use for a close up. this one you'll use for, you know, like a seven iron or, and I was like, oh, and, and, and they just, they taught me about it. And then I, then I realized I fell in love with long lens photography. I just think it's the most beautiful thing on earth. So I'm always trying to shoot long lens. And I always have felt it helped with what I realized with long lens, you get the camera further back. The actors seem to be a little bit looser than when you're up there with a wide angle. Um, I, you know, I started looking at the camera, realized that the camera was not, it was it's technical, but actually the camera was is, is, a, is a character in the movie, which I didn't realize at first. It was like a voyeur. Because, you know, you, people say, well, where do you put the camera in a scene? And I realized I just put a camera where I want, you know, if I was an audience member, I would like to see what my eyes were seeing. So like when Daniel and Leia Kate was on the edge of the bed and he's whispering down. So we had the wide shot of him whispering down. And I said to Ben, I want to be down underneath him looking up. I want to see what he's whispering, you know. And he was like, oh, God, we can't do that with the lenses. We're going to have to build the bed up. We're in a hotel. We're going to have to put the bed up. There's a scene in Layer Cake through the glass table of them making the yeah. gun and the drinks. We had to build that up about seven meters in the air because <laughs> of the lenses we were shooting. Um, then our long lenses are fantastic, but they bring massive issues. They're technically harder to focus. You can't get as close. Um, so 
and I love anamorphic as well, which I'm, you know, but so, yeah. but, but I learned all this by what I liked. So I wasn't technically good with the camera, but I knew what was right for the story. So yeah, I moved the camera when the camera has to move. I'm always, when I did X-Men, I started getting notes from the studio saying, you need to move the camera more. I'm like what? Oh, the, the, the chairman loves it when the camera moves left to right all the time. Just keep it moving. I mean, but if you just keep it moving, then it gets boring. And then when it does move, you're not understanding that a big moment's happening. And I was like, I'll do, I, and I can buy you with the camera. And they go, not enough. I went, no, I do. And then we cut the scene together and this, it moves, but at the right time for, a, there's a, there's a motivation for the camera to move, which again, I, I was fascinated because I think, you know, I think you, you, you know, you can make pop videos where it's spinning around and all that, or, but the, you know, I always say to, you know, to people ask me, how do you direct? Put the camera where it's obvious to put it and move it when it need, you know, to make the story more exciting or to make it underline a point. But stillness is okay. There's nothing wrong with a, you know, a still camera. One of my favorite things in film is, is actually to watch actors think, figuring out a problem, you know, and you're looking at their face and they're quiet mm -hmm. and the yeah. camera is being still. I just rewatched The Fugitive for the first time in a few years. And there are and, and that is known as one of the most fast paced movies ever made. You, you, you imagine The Fugitive as a movie in which it's always moving and people are always running. But there are so many scenes where Tommy Lee Jones is just like staring at photos thinking. Wow. And it's riveting. And Harrison Ford, same thing, trying to figure out, you know, the case and, you know, who killed his wife and yada, yada, yada. Oh, wow. I, have to, I will watch it again. It's, it's fascinating that you say that because, and I'm all about eyeline, by the way. I like getting in the eyelines, you know, because then you don't, you know, it, it, it's, I want to feel this character and, 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 and a, a lot of people shoot multi-camera, right? And the problem about multi-camera, every eyeline is then sort of compromised. Um, yeah. so I, I like to like, it's it interesting on, on, on the King's man, when we made that and I looked at the first edit and I, I was like, Oh my God, this wasn't the movie I was thinking it was making. And for some reason, the editor back then used mainly the B camera. And then I went, can we go back and shoot, just edit a camera. And for me, B camera, we have one is pick up. If there's something interesting and quirky that you can get, but I'm, you know, I'm more of a one camera guy. I think I just think each shot should be thought about and be right for that moment. We had one on ours and, you know, some of that was budgetary, but we had a B camera for only uh, two scenes. And uh, I, I found in the edit that I rarely used it because yeah. the DP and I had shot listed the movies to such an extent that we knew what we wanted it to look like. And yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think he's doing action and stuff. You need more cameras for if you're blowing something up i get it but drama and and you know drama you, you don't really need more than one camera i'm curious how filmmaking has evolved since you made layer cake you know has the process of trying to get a film off the ground and greenlit changed at all would you say it's easier now or harder i was a guy with guy ritchie running around trying to get lock stock off the ground and nobody wanted to make it then the film was finished. Nobody wanted to release it. Uh, I had the same problem when I did Kick-Ass. Nobody wanted to, to finance Kick-Ass. And when it was finished, nobody wanted to release it. So, um, Which is insane to me. Uh, yeah. So I've, 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 I, I know what it's like how, how, and how hard it is to get a movie made. Um, 
And I, um, now for me, obviously, it's easier, much easier, because I've, you know, I've raised money, I've made people money, and I've got a track record, and I've got experience. So, you know, it's easier to raise the money to get it made. It doesn't mean it's easier to make it, though. You know, every movie is as hard and as, as you learn. There isn't a movie where I haven't learned a lot on every film you make, right? It's, it's really, really fascinating. And even if I think if you dare to think you know everything in making a movie, retire, because that means you become delusional. It depends what sort of movies you want to make. Like in the Hollywood system, like I also learned there's ways of writing scripts to raise finance, and then, then there's the script to make the movie from, right? Um, so when you, write, when you write a script to raise money, you've got to write it for idiots to read. You know, you literally have to make it a fun read and with lots of description and make it more like a like a story, you know, like, like an audible book. And um, But you don't need all that crap when you're making a film. You know, you just need the dialogue and minimum direction, right? Um, which makes the, and then you get the page countdown. You know, that's the way I'm saying, oh, you got to make it shorter. Just get rid of all the fucking description. It's a movie. Um, <laughs> I also say to people when they're writing scripts, the most important thing I was taught, and it transformed my writing, is screenplays are meant to be heard, not read. So at the end of the day, give the script to someone or be with, you know, and read it and hear it. I mean, not you know, as in read it aloud. Don't don't read it. Like you've got to hear, you know, dialogue is to be it's a different thing. So things that read beautifully don't necessarily as in on the, when you're reading on the page, than being spoken. It's, you know, it's a different thing. The way I speak is not how I write and vice versa. You know, raising money, I, I always say to people, if you don't believe in the movie, why should I believe in the movie as well? Because now I'm on the other side, you know, people come to me for, for money and I and I want to back, I've just made a new movie backing my stunt team, you know, and it's written, directed and starring my stunt guys. And I back them because A, I've worked with them, but B, they were passionate. And they said, we're gonna make a movie that no one's seen before. And I was like, oh my God, this was exactly how I felt when we went out with Lockstock, when I went out with Kickass, and you're gonna, and, and it's scaring me. I'm like, oh my God, I'm about to write a check and probably never gonna see this money again, but I know I'm gonna make these people have a chance to make me feel old and do a movie that I didn't, wouldn't know how to make. And that's what's important is we have to pass the baton on. And that's one of the reasons I think a lot of directors fail that they make a great, and let's say your film turns out great, and I hope it does. And then Hollywood calls and goes, hey, come make a $75 million movie for us. And you're like, great. And then you're suddenly sitting there going, oh, wait, I'm used to driving a car with a stick shift and I have four gears. Now this has got 35 gears. I am not allowed to touch the accelerator and I'm only, and, and they, they've just poked me in the eye and I can't see straight. And I, now I'm going to crash this thing. And I don't understand, this is unfair. And then it crashes and they go, you're an idiot. You crashed it. It wasn't our fault. And so, that what's happening now is a lot of directors, they, it ste I stepped up, you know, Layer Cake, Stardust. Yeah, so that was my, like my kick-ass. And then X-Men was my big budget learning curve, making a studio movie. And then after I'd done that, I went, okay, I've had enough. I'm now going to do, I'm going to do Kingsman. And that movie was the first time I actually genuinely believed I was directing a movie and semi-knew what I was doing. Up to that point, I had imposter syndrome times a million. Um, trying to figure it all, all out. So, um, but work your way up, and it's very flattering if you make a movie and you the big budget stuff. But just be careful what you wish for. You got to get match fit before you make some of those bigger, so that you have a career and you don't get go into director's jail. Not because you're not talented, but you had executives forcing you to make a bad decision and then blaming it on you. 
Thank you so much, Matthew, for taking the time to, to talk to me today to answer those questions. I think this is great advice for people. I think people can learn a lot from this. Um, and, you know, you're a personal hero of mine, man. You've made so many great films and you've maintained your voice throughout them. And I really can't wait to see what you do next. For those listening, Argyle comes out February 2nd. It is an absolute blast. You guys should check it out. Again, thank you so much, man, for taking the time to talk to me. Thank you. It was very interesting. And good luck with your movie. Thank you so much, man. Yeah, cool.